0: I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, We are technically, I guess you could say, still in a series on the book of Jonah. Now, that's funny that we're talking about Jonah, but I just asked you to turn to Matthew. We're going to look at an interesting section in Matthew where Jesus refers to the prophet Jonah. Jonah. He's going to say something, he's going to bring something up that is in a cultural context. It's something he's saying to a particular people at a particular moment in time, but it's something that he says that rings throughout the centuries, even down to us this very morning. Something that's relevant for us to listen to what he says and how he speaks of the story of Jonah. Before we get there, I just want to note, most people in America, in our our nation, uh, know something about Jesus Christ. Would you find that to be true? Most people have some idea of the story of Jesus Christ and what he's done. They have a general idea of the teachings that he's given, or at least the most popular ones. Um, Jesus is a well-known name. Uh, Jesus wouldn't be, especially in our country, a person that you would bring up to blank stares and a total non-understanding of who he is. In general, people know about Jesus. If you go to your work tomorrow and you bring up the name of Jesus Christ, people are not going to be all confused about that. They have an idea. They understand something about him. Uh, They have even some of his teachings that they've maybe even adopted for themselves. I'm sure even, if you were to ask them what they thought about Jesus, they would be pretty positive. Wouldn't you agree? I don't know that most people would, on hearing the name of Christ, uh, be totally disgusted by it. There are some out there, I'm sure. But in general, people like Jesus. People are pro-Jesus. People speak positively about Jesus. A lot of people hail him as a great man. A lot of people love him as a teacher, as a moral example. They probably agree that we could all use a little more Jesus in our lives. That's the general understanding. People like Jesus. In a sense, everybody does. That is until they start to really know Jesus. There are those of us who, upon hearing about the person and work of Christ, recognize that he is our only hope. We turn from all else and give our lives to him. It also seems, though, that there are people who will speak positive of Jesus. They'll like him until they really learn what he's saying. Specifically, they hear about how Jesus calls us to repent. And when they hear about this idea of repentance, turning away from your own life and your own selfish ambitions and turning away from self-reliance and turning, reorienting your entire life Around Jesus Christ, suddenly he's not so appealing. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew, a particular section in there, and I'm going to illustrate this reality. There were people that, upon hearing about Jesus, were really excited about him. Oh, they loved Jesus. They loved Jesus as he was doing miracles, and he was feeding a bunch of people, and he was teaching and drawing a crowd. There were some people who just loved him, couldn't get enough of him. And then they began to hear about his actual teachings. They got to know what he was saying. And suddenly their response to him wasn't one of love and adoration. Suddenly it was one of rejection. You're in the Gospel of Matthew. I just want to lay some of the groundwork before we get to the text. We're going to be in chapter 12. But I want you to know that Matthew, as a book, is is put together to put forward Jesus Christ and to herald him as the true king. He's the true king, all right? He is God's Messiah coming for his people to be their Lord, to be their king, to be their savior. The book of Matthew is very clear about making this point. Chapters 1 to 4 reveal his person. Chapters 5 to 7, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and that reveals his principles. It's the principles of his kingdom. Chapters 8 to 10 reveal Refer to his power very clearly. Matthew, in writing this biography of Jesus, is presenting forth a man who is king. He is God incarnate, come to be the salvation for his people. His message, although he speaks of many things, could be singularly described by one word. It is repent. The king is here. The king has come, the king is from heaven, the king is God incarnate, his message to his people and indeed to all the world is this, repent. Here's who I am, here's what I'm teaching, here's my the, the, the proof that I am who I say I am. Now your response is turn from all else and follow the. John the Baptist, the one who comes before Jesus, comes on the scene, and he starts preaching in chapter 3, verse 2 of Matthew. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just one chapter later, in chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew describes Jesus beginning his ministry, and he begins to preach, and guess what he says? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance. It's one of those words that seems to be falling out of use in a lot of American churches. It's one of those words that's central to Jesus' teaching, but often gets left out of often our gospel presentations. Jesus comes with a message of repentance. Repent. In Hebrew, this idea is captured by the word turn. It's, It's never meant to describe, and you get this in the Old Testament again and again and again, it's never meant to describe a mere mental agreement to certain facts about God. It's always intended to describe a whole turning of oneself, a whole reorientation of your life from serving idols in the Old Testament to serving the true and living God. Turn! Jesus comes on the scene. He starts using the Greek word, metanoia. The idea is the same. It's a change of mind that results in a turning, a reorientation of your life. It's a full-hearted reorientation, where your life, having formerly been built around yourself, about self-reliance, about your own dreams and ambitions, it's a life built on self-righteousness, self-guidance, self-salvation, repentance is the change of mind when you now look at all those things that you once lived for and you say, this is garbage, this is useless, I can't hope in any of this, I must turn away and reorient my life around this man, Jesus Christ. This is the message that Jesus comes into the world to bring. Repent, turn, change your mind, change your direction. Change your hopes. Set them on Christ. God's message to humanity, we might note, is not to ask Jesus into your heart. It's not to make sure you raise your hand when the preacher asks for a decision. It's not to mentally agree with certain theological facts while going on in your life the way you want to live. It is a personal and deep sense of abject spiritual poverty total inability to live the life you know you ought to live before god it is to declare it is to declare bankruptcy before god and man and say i can't and then to turn to god as your only hope for salvation and for help and for grace it's personal it's deep It's a reorientation of an entire life. Now, Jesus comes with this message. How do you think the people responded? Well, the poor in spirit loved this message because they were looking for a Savior. But those who were not poor in spirit, those who felt that life was pretty good, those who felt, especially these religious elites, who felt that by their self-righteousness had climbed a certain... uh, certain heights on that ladder of religiosity, they felt pretty good about themselves. They didn't want a king calling for repentance. They didn't want to bow the knee. They didn't want to turn from their lives. That would mean that they would need to give up so many things they held dear, including their own acts of goodness that they felt made them presentable to God. So Matthew is doing this. Jesus is king. Repent. That's what this book is doing. Jesus is Messiah, turn your life to him. Jesus is the one living God incarnate, come to save his people. It is the act of God's grace to come and to save the people who will come and trust in him. He's presenting the only salvation to the world, and you have throughout the Gospels always two reactions to this man. One of repentance, a humbling, and a turning A desperation calling out to Christ for that mercy. And then you see, sadly and unfortunately, the response of those religious elite, often the scribes and the Pharisees. How do they react to this call to repent? They don't like it. They don't want a king. They're pretty good on their own. So if you're in Matthew right now, you could see Matthew chapter 10 kind of finishes up declaring this, this person of Christ, and then you get into Matthew chapter 11, and the tone changes.
1: If you're reading Matthew, I, I want
0: to encourage, look at this, watch what happens. You read through Matthew's chapters 1 to 10, and then you, there's a marked difference, a, a new angle that begins to take place in chapter 11, and the angle is basically this. I've declared who Jesus is. He is the king. He has come. He's calling for repentance. And then in chapter 11 you begin to see the response of the religious elite. And do they like him? No, they don't. They don't like him. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is rejected. Jesus describes how John the Baptist and his message is ignored. In the latter part of chapter 11, Jesus tells of entire cities rejecting Jesus Christ, even after witnessing mighty miracles. In chapter 12, the fever pitch of rejection is getting worse and worse. They're trying to figure a way, figure out a way to do away with Jesus. The, the Jesus as king and his call and repentance is a big threat on all the Jewish leaders, so they want to get rid of him. They want to do anything they can to discredit him, and so they begin to clobber him with all sorts of accusations. They're literally trying to pin something on him so they can discredit him before the people so they'll stop following him around so they can gain control of the people back for themselves. They accuse him of doing works on the Sabbath. He heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and they are fuming about it because uh, they don't like what Jesus is doing here. They don't like how he's... demonstrating his power and authority and drawing a crowd. In chapter 12, verse 14, you can see it. It's not even uh, hidden at this point. Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Right then, it's open. The, The people know, the Pharisees know, we are against this man. Let's talk together about how to discredit him and get him out of the picture. This story of the coming king is, is all great, and Jesus is presented as the Messiah, and it all starts to turn in chapter 11 as we realize these people don't actually want a Savior. They start accusing him for these outlandish things. He's healing, and the one thing they could pin against him that will, will be their attempt to discredit him is he healed someone on the wrong day. That's all they got. He's an immaculate man. He's living a perfect life. He, they can't get anything of real... Uh, A real accusation against him, and so they're accusing him of doing supernatural miracles. It even gets worse. You could see it in chapter 12 again, verse 22 Demon oppressed man. A demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? They're all realizing this is the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard of it, this is verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, what did they do? It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They're accusing him not of having power. They can't can't deny that. Jesus has this obvious power. They recognize that. But what they are doing is they're claiming it's coming from Satan. Now, here we begin to have this encounter It's a climactic encounter of unbelief versus versus the true king. These people who have claimed to be religious, who have claimed to be God's true people, are now meeting their God incarnate, and we're going to see a clash because they have always thought that they're right with God, and they're pretty self-righteous about it, and now God shows up in their lives, meets them face to face, and they hate him. I wonder how true of that is the church that people claim to love God they even claim to love Jesus but when they get face to face with Christ and his word and what he actually calls his people to they don't like that they reject that they'll they'll take a Jesus who will be a savior they don't like a Jesus who is going to be a lord They'll take a Jesus who loves to forgive and is all about love. They don't want a Jesus who's going to call them to a changed life. wonder if there are people like that. They're, they're happy to say they love Jesus. They just don't want to obey Jesus. And what we're going to see is an interplay between these two groups, a collision, you might say. Now, I'm going to warn you, if you haven't, Repent it this morning and given your life to Jesus Christ. I think part of the design of this text is that Jesus is going after you. I think he loves you. Not I think, I don't need to say I think. Jesus loves you. And, and Jesus in this text wants to persuade you to come to him. He wants to give you a reason to turn away from all else and, and to come to him. And so this is Jesus, all these years ago, speaking to those people who would not repent, and I think out of this heart of compassion, he's He's bringing up something to them. And there are going to be some hard words, we say, but we must know that Jesus speaks these words in love, and he is the hound of heaven who comes after his children who wants to bring them in to salvation. So we're going to see here, Jesus is going to give these scribes and Pharisees who continually reject the lordship of Christ, who continually refuse to repent and turn, he's going to give them a good reason that they should. Jesus is going after them. And if you're in that same boat with those Pharisees, you're like, "Ah, I'm not sure I need need Jesus. Uh, I can uh, gladly affirm that he's a good guy. I'm just not going to reorient my whole life around him. I will happily affirm that he's a good example, but I am not about to bend the knee and reorient and restructure my whole life around him and his purposes. I'm not about to do that. Well, I think Jesus is coming for you out of love because he's a gracious God, not because you've deserved it, but because he's here to be the Savior offered to all the world. Whoever comes to him, he will by no means turn away. So we're going to see in this text a few things. We're going to start here. We're going to work through it. I'm just going to use some headings so we can track through. First, we're going to see this, an insidious question. So these people, these scribes and Pharisees in chapter 12 now, we're in chapter 12, we're getting to our text here, verse 38. We're going to see this insidious questions. This is what they say. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now you might think just on first read through here that these people are genuine. I just want a sign. Just give me a sign, Jesus, we'll then believe. Just just give me a little more revelation, a little more information, give me some extravagant sign. If you do that, then I'm going to be happy to come to you. I'll be happy to repent. I'll turn my life over to you. It's actually insidious because now having seen the context, you know, there was no lack of signs. In fact, if you want to, I want to just invite you to turn back to chapter 8 real quick so we can just see all the things that Jesus has already done. In chapter 8, if you even just look at some of the editorial headings in your Bible, you'll already know that chapters 8, 9, and 10 have been chock full of miracles. Just in chapter 8 alone, let's look at some of the things he does. He cleanses a leper. He heals the servant of a centurion. He heals... Peter's mother-in-law, and many others. He casts out demons. He, verse 23 of chapter 8, calms a storm harnessing creation to do his bidding. You might ask, what authority does this man have? And the authority is all-inclusive. He is God incarnate. He can tell storms to do whatever he asks them to do. He casts out some more demons at the end of chapter 8. He heals a paralytic in chapter nine. He forgives sin in early chapter nine. He brings a little girl back to life who had died. He heals a woman who is sick. He gives sight to some blind men. He makes someone who is mute and couldn't speak. He calls them and they he speaks. This is God incarnate, Jesus, walking around, almost bringing heaven to earth, causing all kinds of sicknesses and ailments and oppressions of these people to be removed from their lives. B.B. Warfield, commenting on the healing ministry of Jesus, says this, When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The number of the miracles which he wrought might easily be underrated, it has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. If this is exaggeration, it is pardonable exaggeration because wherever he went, he brought blessings. Uh, You read through the, the, the gospel biographies, these stories of Jesus, these true stories, eyewitness accounts, and what you see is Jesus, wherever he's going, he's healing. He's casting out demons. He's doing miraculous signs again and again and again. He will even heal and sometimes tell people to remain quiet about it, and they can't. And the word of his reputation spreads and spreads and spreads. Listen, the scribes and Pharisees knew exactly who he was and who he was claiming to be, and they didn't like it. And for them to come up to him and ask for a sign is laughable. Are you kidding me? You need another sign? All these other things weren't enough for you? See, this isn't these honest seekers coming and asking a question trying to really evaluate the person of Christ. It is not that at all. We've already seen. They've been conspiring against him. They don't want him as Lord. They don't want to repent. And they're asking for a sign. Why? Because they're saying, you haven't given me enough to repent yet. Jesus, do what I want you to do. I want you under my thumb. I want you to do what I want you to do. Basically, they're acting like all the things that Jesus has done is nothing. I wonder if there are any people this morning hearing this that are like these scribes and these Pharisees in this sense. They're still waiting on Jesus to do a little more. Come on, Jesus. And my life has been hard. I've gone through a lot. And, And Jesus, maybe if you just do a little more for me, then I'll come. Then I'll trust you. I just need a sign. (laughs) Give me a sign, Jesus. Waiting on Jesus to do your will, trying to get him to operate on your timetable, to do things according to your desires. It turns out, guys, signs aren't the issue for their unbelief. That's not the reason they're not believing. Jesus knows that. Signs aren't going to cause them to believe. If he gives them more signs, they have all the signs they need. They got everything they need. They they, they know who he is. The sign is not the issue. The sign is the excuse they're getting out of the command to repent. And sometimes this is what people do. They say, yes, I'll repent as soon as I know a little more about Jesus. Answer a little more of my questions. Give me a little more uh, evidence. For these people, that wasn't really the issue. Jesus had made clear who he was. They were rejecting him. And that's why Jesus, here's our second point, Gives them a striking indictment. They ask an insidious question, and Jesus responds with a striking indictment. Look at verse 39. But he answered them, and the evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They had all the signs they needed. By asking for a sign, they're refusing to acknowledge everything Jesus had already done. They're expressing the unbelief of their hearts. They had enough information. The information wasn't the problem. They just didn't want to make Jesus their Lord. That was it. They didn't want to call him their king. They didn't want to repent. I remember hearing a story about a an atheist and a Christian who had been meeting to talk about the faith, and this Christian was really trying to lead this atheist to the Lord. And again and again, they were trying to... the Christian trying to help this atheist understand the claims of Christ and of Christianity. Finally, the Christian said, I want you to do this for me. Would you please put on a paper, make a list of all the big problems you have with Christianity. All the intellectual problems that are preventing you from coming to accept uh, the reality of the person and work, of Christ. So the atheist ended up doing that and he wrote down a, a list of things that were preventing him, in his mind, from coming to trust in Christ. After doing that, they got back together and the Christian looked at the list and observed it and looked at all the issues and He he said this, if if I were able to answer to your intellectual satisfaction every single one of your problems, if I take this list and I go through it and I give you the answer for every single last one of your issues, would you come then? He paused. Well, I don't know. That was revealing, wasn't it? Even if all your answers are given. Even if all your problems are solved. Maybe that's not really the issue. Maybe the issue is you just don't like Jesus. That's often what's going on in people's hearts as they're asking for signs. Jesus, just do a little more. God, just give me a sign. Sometimes the real issue is not that God hasn't given enough signs. Listen, every evidence is everywhere. The reality is that often our own hearts don't like Jesus And that's exactly what's happening here. So Jesus calls them out, evil and adulterous generation. That's why you're seeking a sign. Because all the other evidence isn't enough for you. Evil, we know what that means. He calls his generation evil. Let's just sit here and remind ourselves that perfect love can call a generation evil. Jesus is perfect love. And in perfect love, he calls this generation evil because he's speaking truth. They're evil in that they don't live up to God's righteous standards. They're evil in that they call good evil and evil good. So Jesus lets them know, again, this is Jesus out of love, helping them see their state so they can hopefully repent and be saved. So he's speaking like it is. And they're adulterous. Adulterous, that has a Uh, more of the connotations of a, a relational violation. We know what adultery is. It's a heinous sin when it ever happens in a marriage. Jesus is speaking of this generation as if they're a cheating wife, and God is a faithful husband, and he has been good to them, and he has been kind to them, and he has provided for them, and they, in response to his love and goodness and kindness, are cheating on him. Again, Jesus is calling it like it is. This is an indictment on humanity. And let me propose, this is not just the uh, generation that he's speaking to. I think by extension, Jesus uh, makes a statement that uh, applies to every single generation before and since. Genesis chapter 6. Let's go as early as we can. Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Listen to this. That every intention... Of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can't get any more superlative than that. All the time, all the thoughts, deep in the heart, humanity is sinful. Ecclesiastes, moving a little bit forward. The heart of the sons of men, listen to this, is fully set in them to do evil. Chapter 9, verse 3, Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Jeremiah calls the heart of the human being, the fallen heart, the unrenewed heart, desperately wicked. I got out one of the books that gives all the references to the way the Bible describes the unrenewed human heart. Listen to this list of words. The unrenewed human heart, hateful to God, full of evil, desperately wicked, far from God, prone to wander, impenitent, unbelieving, deceitful, deceived, darkened, prone to division, hard, proud, influenced by the devil, carnal, covetous, foolish, idolatrous, rebellious, perverse, stubborn, stony, insensitive. That is the fallen condition of man. And when Jesus describes his generation that they're evil and adulterous, I think he's describing all of fallen humanity. We were made for him. He he designed us for his glory, and we've turned. And we often will evaluate our goodness and our moral upstanding by one another, by other people. And so we have a, a skewed view of what goodness is and badness is. But the biblical way of understanding goodness and badness is by looking at God and his standards. And his word declares that all that we have done in all our lives is to fall way short. The words tell a story of a fallen condition of man. And here Jesus calls it like it is and he makes a striking indictment. And this is done in love because he needs these people to understand their desperate condition. And if they don't understand their desperate condition, they will be lost. They'll be lost. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign, the evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but listen to what he goes on to say. But no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here's our third point as we're working through the text. Here's the climactic sign. you got a serious question. You've got a striking indictment. Here we're going to see Jesus talking about an, a climactic sign. Verse 40. For just as Jonah Was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Some of you are really into reading good literature. You read a lot of good fiction books. You enjoy getting lost in a book, and maybe you do that for films. You love watching a good movie. A good story really intrigues you, draws you in. And you know that one of the elements of a great story is something called foreshadowing. Uh, something that happens early on in the story that you see and you recognize, and maybe it's not even that prominent, but then later on in the story, it plays a big part. It plays, it enters back into the plot line. The, the gun that's hanging on the mantle when you walk into the cabin ends up being the gun that's shot in the final scene, things like that. Uh, it's foreshadowing. It's something that early on helps you understand the plot later on. The Bible is written, uh, in one sense, by many authors, You got Moses in the Old Testament, you got Paul and John and Peter in the New, you got all kinds of different authors, but in another sense, it's written by one author, the Holy Spirit, inspiring these men to write a story, to write these books, to write these letters. And so it makes sense, when we read the Bible, the singular author of the Holy Scriptures are going to make the Bible connect, it's a coherent singular whole, it's telling one story from beginning to end. And so things that are happening in the Old Testament are not disjointed from things that are happening in the New Testament. And so when we're reading the Bible, we're always looking for the ways the storyline comes together and intertwines. That's why I love looking at things like this. Because Jesus goes back in his mind to the story of Jonah. By the way, he doesn't see it as a mere allegory or some metaphor, he's seen as his history, so Jesus even himself recognized that Jonah is true historical narrative, the events actually happened, he looks at that story as a foreshadowing event to something greater. You already know this happens if you've studied the Bible, there's a high priest in the Old Testament, foreshadowing what? Jesus, the great high priest in the New Testament. The Old Testament priest offered sacrifices. The great high priest, Jesus himself, offers himself as a singular sacrifice for all time. In the Old Testament, you have the exodus event. God's people are in, freed from slavery in Egypt. In the New Testament, you have something even more glorious, a greater exodus of God's people being saved not by Moses but by Jesus and being freed not from slavery in Egypt but by slavery to sin and Satan. You get this in the Old Testament, Passover. Ritual, putting blood over the doorposts of your house, foreshadowing the new covenant where the blood of Christ now cleanses us from all sins and saves us from the righteous judgment of God. The Old Testament and the New Testament are coherent stories that help us understand all that God has done for us in Christ. I wonder if you knew that Jonah was that. That when we were studying Jonah, there's actually paving the way. Yes, there are lessons in there, but there's also a foreshadowing that's happening. And when we studied Jonah, we didn't know it, but Jesus, years later, would look at the events and see something very powerful, a sign that he would see, a foreshadowing, a prefiguring. What is it? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man, that's Jesus' way of referring to himself here, so will I be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he doing? Jesus is saying, I'm not going to give you a sign, except one sign. It's the sign of Jonah. You say, what is that? What's the sign of Jonah? Well, just like Jonah was in the, that fish for three days, three nights, I'm going to be in the earth three days, three nights. And just like Jonah came out of that fish and preached a message of Warning to the Ninevites, so I'm going to come out of the earth and I'm going to preach the message of salvation to all the world. That's the sign. The sign to draw the analogy and see what Jesus is getting at is this. Jesus will die and Jesus will rise again. Just as Jonah It seems like God, so close to death, if you remember chapter 2, he talks about almost fainting away, almost to the point where he goes, there's no return, he comes back to, to be saved by God's grace. Just as he was plunged near death and brought out, Jesus will truly die. He will be in the earth. He will rise from the dead. And that will be the one sign I will give you. That's it. Let's get this back into the context of the whole book. Remember, Jesus is saying, I'm king. I'm here. I'm here to save you. I'm here to be your Lord and your Savior, your Redeemer. I've come. I've evidenced it all along. I've taught you all my principles. I've demonstrated my power, and you keep rejecting me. And so all these other signs that you claim you want, I'm not going to give them to you, but I'm going to give you one sign. I'm going to give you one sign. It's the sign of Jonah. It's what Jonah was prefiguring, and though he might not have known it, I'm going to be the full expression of what Jonah was doing. I'm going to truly die. I'm going to be truly buried, and I will rise from the dead. That's the sign I'm going to give you. I will die. I will rise. I wonder what the Pharisees thought at that point what is he talking about? He's the son of man is going to die and rise. What's going on here? But this was how Jesus treated their skepticism. This was how Jesus addressed their questions. Their desire for a sign, Jesus says, All right, I'll give you a sign. I will die and I will rise. You may not be a Christian this morning and you've come and you share in the skepticism of these scribes and Pharisees. You go, ah, should I really reorient my whole life around this man, around this book, around his teachings? Like Jesus, or or like the, the, the scribes and Pharisees, you're saying, well, come on, give me a little more, more evidence, this is all real. Help me understand this, prove it, Jesus. Give me a sign, Jesus, give me a reason, why should I follow you? Why should I give my life to you? I got a pretty good life here. Why should I reorient everything to give it all to you? Why? And Jesus says, here's my sign. I died for sinners. I was buried in the earth. I am alive right now. I conquered death. I am Lord of all. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says. I am the conqueror of death I am the giver of life he has all authority in all the universe and he has proven it in his resurrection that's the sign that Jesus gave to that generation and listen to all generations from that day to this day Jesus is alive he is Lord and King he has come for his people he has paid for their sin. He has risen from the dead and right now is the risen Lord of the universe. He says, repent. Out of His love for you, He invites you into a relationship with God and the proof that you can come to the Father, the proof that you can have your sins forgiven, the proof that it's worth it to lay down your life and to follow Him is Jesus conquered death and is alive right now. Right now He's alive. Right now he speaks to you. And right now is the risen Lord. If you haven't repented yet because you're waiting for a sign, I'm here to say he's already given you the sign. He's already given you himself. He's already rose from the dead. That has happened. You you go, okay, wait, wait a second, Eric. He's risen from the dead. That's impossible. Let's be very clear what I'm meaning here. I'm saying, yes, he did what is humanly impossible. I'm not speaking of some spiritual resurrection I'm not speaking about some metaphorical thing that we feel like Jesus really conquered death and and really there's a tomb somewhere and his bones are in it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that really Jesus became a man, that really he was incarnate. He was fully God, fully man became a man for us, taking on himself a human nature. He went to the cross to pay for the sins of people who were his enemies. He died and was buried. He physically, bodily, in history, in space and time, ascended, rose out of the grave. He kicked open that tomb. He came out. He's really alive right now. And as the risen Lord, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we, listen, are insane to not trust him and give our lives to obeying him. Why oppose someone you can't ever kill? If he's Lord of the universe, you can't overthrow him. He, you kill him, he'll rise again. He's done it once. You can't oppose this Lord. You can. But the Bible does say in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess It doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. It means that there will some find themselves on Judgment Day bending the knee to a Christ they rejected. They will find themselves in opposition to their own Lord and Creator. They will realize that they stand against His grace and they will face His righteous wrath. He said, prove prove me the resurrection happened. Come on. it's written down in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's testified by the earliest writings of the Bible. The letter to the Corinthians, written about 55 AD by the Apostle Paul, talked about the resurrected Christ appearing to more than 500 people at a time, most of whom are still alive, he says. If anybody had any questions, they could ask the people who were alive. It was, it was a, a known fact. Jesus rose from the dead. The only people who were denying it were the same scribes and Pharisees who denied the signs all along. And they're the ones who said after the tomb was empty, let's propagate a lie so everyone believes that the body was stolen. They knew he was alive. They didn't want him as Lord. That was the issue. Acts chronicles the same thing. These witnesses standing up and saying Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He has been risen from the dead. And all through the book of Acts, you know the only proper response to resurrected Christ, do you know what it is? Repent! You don't want to stand against Him on Judgment Day when He returns. He's alive. He will return. He will judge the world. You need to turn and be on His side. He's a coming King. He's the risen Lord. Listen, this is true. And if it's true, it is the most important thing in your life right now that if you haven't reconciled to God through his risen son, Jesus Christ, don't go to bed tonight until you do. Remember when I was a young man wrestling through my teen years with the reality of Christ, this, this saying of C.S. Lewis was ringing in my ears and it eventually won me over. He said, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If false, it's of no importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If you are living as if the risen Christ is moderately important to you, let me ask you to pick a side. Then pick Christ. But don't act like this doesn't matter. Because if he has entered history, and if he has conquered death and Satan and sin and hell, and if he has risen from the dead, your whole life needs to change in accordance with that fact. He's alive. People who have tried to figure out the reality of this, atheists, agnostics, who have tried to, to set out and disprove the Resurrection story have been converted. Frank Morrison, a skeptic, set out to disprove the resurrection. He couldn't explain how the stone was rolled away, he couldn't explain where the body went, and so he wrote a whole book that ended up testifying to his own conversion and his belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The book was called Who Moved the Stone? His only conclusive evidence was it had to be Jesus. Same thing happened to Lee Strobel, famous author of The Case for Christ. He set out to discredit it. He set out to say it couldn't have happened. He set out to say there's no way the resurrection of Christ was a real historical event. And what happened? He ended up being converted. Why? Because the evidence all points to the reality of a resurrected Christ. For the people in Jesus' day, it really wasn't about signs or no signs. It wasn't that they didn't have enough signs at all. It was they didn't want to repent. And if you are not a Christian, Jesus says to you this morning, I offer you the sign of Jonah. I was in the belly of the earth. I rose again on the third day. What will you do with that fact? I am Lord, he says, and I am a Savior. And if you repent and turn to me, You will be saved and forgiven and clothed in righteousness and adopted into the family. You will be forever loved and cherished by the Heavenly Father, welcomed into eternity as a reconciled child of God. You will never regret repenting. What are you going to do with the greatest sign in human history? How are you going to explain it away? If you're not willing to bend the knee to Christ, a church appeared overnight after the resurrection. How'd that happen? Doubting followers were ready suddenly to now give up their lives for this Christ that they follow. How did that happen? Resurrection. The church of Jesus Christ has been the most accused and attacked religion in the history of the world and yet it continues to spread to all nations. How? It's because it's run and led by the resurrected Christ. He will not fail. And this is God's sign to you, and this is His invitation to you. Repent. Turn to Him and be saved. Be forgiven. Be welcomed. The sign that Jesus offers this generation in the text here rejects is rejected. The generation rejects the sign. Jesus will go to the cross. He will die. He will be buried. He will rise from the dead, and they will find themselves making excuses for why it didn't actually happen, although they can't explain how the body's not there anymore. That's how deep their unbelief is. All the evidence is pointing that he is Lord, and they still won't bend the knee. And so Jesus says to them, verse 41, this is the last little heading here, This is a condemned generation. Verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. With this generation, condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh will rise. See that word, rise? They will, one day on Judgment Day, they will rise up. These men, all those years ago, Who repented at that five word sermon that Jonah preached? They turned to God and they will stand up. There will be a resurrection of the dead. And these men from Nineveh will stand up. And what will they do? They will condemn that generation. Why didn't you believe? All we had was a disobedient prophet and a tiny sermon. And we turned to God. And you had God Himself. And you had all his teachings and you saw all his miracles and you still didn't believe? You saw the sign of Jonah and you didn't believe? You saw the death, burial, resurrection and you rejected him? And he says they will be rise up and condemn. Guys, this is speaking of a future resurrection for all. The future resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Friends, this is what Jesus teaches is going to happen. John chapter 5. Do not but marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I'm going to use your imagination here. Tombs bursting open, graveyards becoming empty, the sea spitting out their dead. All rise before the judge of the universe. All people standing before the king of kings. Every person From Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel down to this very day to the people in this very room standing up before the judge of all mankind. You will be there. And Jesus describes in Matthew 25 a dividing up of the people. His people on one side. The unbelievers, the wicked on the other. And he says... Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We will all stand before the judgment. You will be called to give an account. There are enough signs that have been given throughout history to prove the reality of Jesus Christ. You will have no excuse on that day for what you did with him. We will stand, and the Bible makes clear that those who did not respond properly to the sign of Jonah, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they will be cast out to an eternal hell. Friends, we have to Say this, because the Bible says this. It's right there in the text. There will be condemnation on Judgment Day. We are not universalists. The Bible does not teach that everyone will go to heaven. The Bible makes it very clear that there is a coming judgment and that some people upon Judgment Day will be cast out into hell. It's uncomfortable to talk about, but listen to some of these things that the Bible says. Hell is real. Second Peter, it's a place of black darkness. It's a place of outer darkness. It's described in Matthew 25 as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the only thing you'll hear. It's described as the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. It's a prison of everlasting chains. There is no hope of relief in Jude, is described. It's a furnace... Of conscious torment. The fire never goes out. Excruciating ministry, mi- misery. The worm does not die. It's a place of agonizing thirst. Will will never be never be quenched. You guys. We can't minimize this. This is real. And Jesus is saying, and I can almost imagine him saying it to these scribes and these Pharisees with this moved heart of compassion. He's looking at him and goes, you're going to be condemned. If you don't respond to the sign, you're going to be condemned. And the people who had all the signs will rise up and condemn you because you had it all. You had the, the living Christ before you and you rejected him. The people don't repent. They don't repent. Let me ask you, What are you going to do with the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We're growing old. We will all soon die. We will be in caskets at some point. One day the great trump will sound and we will rise from the dead. We will stand before God on that great day. We will stand before the King and judge of our souls. And you will be evaluated, judged, based on one critical reality. What did you do with the resurrected Christ? Did you repent and reorient your whole life around him? Or did you treat him as if he's only moderately important? A Christ that is only moderately important is no Christ at all. He's not the true Christ, the living Christ, the resurrected Christ. So I warn anyone in this room who hears a sermon after sermon and sees sign after sign of the goodness of God, evidence upon evidence that he is a creator and he is good and he is benevolent to his creation. I want to say to you, for every day that goes by, every time you hear and experience the grace of God and you harden Your heart against it. Your guilt is mounting. And you will be called to account one day. And so I plead with you before the great day of judgment. Jesus has given you the sign. He has done so because he loves you. He is alive right now this very moment. And he's inviting you. Not to become a better person and to clean yourself up but to recognize you are bankrupt and you have no hope apart from him. and So you cast yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ and he will save you. He will not turn you away. It would be to un-Jesus him to turn you away. He will receive you and embrace you and love you and you will be forgiven all your sins. Friends, if you are not right with God. Come to Jesus right now. Be saved and forgiven this moment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are alive and forgive us for ever thinking otherwise. We worship you as a risen Savior. We thank you that you're active right now in our body, our church body to Help us, teach us, correct us, and train us. Thank you that you are pursuing the lost because you are a God of love. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room right now who has never repented, who has not responded to the risen Lord, that they would do so right now. That you would pull them in your amazing grace, and they would experience the joy of sins forgiven and burdens lifted and hearts healed. I pray that you would do that right now, that you would work a miracle among us for your glory. In Jesus' name.